It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 116, King Solomon. Picture with me, young King Solomon, some say at the age of 28, now king of Israel. He's now king of the united and powerful kingdom of Israel, the same Israel that his father came into when it was just a fragmented, poor place. But now it's the most powerful, wealthy country on the planet. Tribute flowed into its mash of treasuries, and the city of Jerusalem expanded beyond its slopes, and storage cities and palaces were being built throughout the kingdom. Its soldiers were the mightiest in the world, and the previous King David was world-renowned. Into this world was born King Solomon. His name means peace, but there is more. He was God's Jedediah, from Second Samuel 12, God's Beloved. No man in the Old Testament walked into such an immediately available generational blessing as this man. Having the twofold extreme blessing of God's beloved and the man of peace. From the blessing of God's beloved, which overflowed upon his passions and whatever he put his heart upon, the future author of the Song of Solomon. In addition to the man of passion and God's beloved, there is the man of peace and prosperity, as he walked into God's wisdom, blessing, honor, and heritage as the author of Proverbs. Let's start the beloved of God before we get to the man of wisdom. So this is where I'm going to begin the dialogue regarding the song of songs. I believe the man of the heart and the man of passion, Solomon, gets his roots quite early. Solomon would go on to become the primary author of three books of the Bible, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, and most scholars agree that he was the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, though there is some dispute as to the author. Let's start with the Song of Solomon. Here's an excerpt from the New Life Application Study Bible regarding the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs is a wedding song honoring marriage. The most explicit statements on sex in the Bible can be found in this book. It has often been criticized through the centuries because of its sensuous language. The purity and sacredness of love represented here, however, are greatly needed in our day where distorted attitudes about love and marriage are commonplace. God created sex and intimacy, and they are holy and good when enjoyed within the bounds of marriage. A husband and wife honor God when they love and enjoy each other. So really, the Song of Songs in many ways seems out of the place in the Bible, but not. I look at the Song of Songs in two ways. It's love poetry in the Bible. It's an example of relations between a man and a wife. I listened to a teaching once by Tommy Nelson of Denton Bible Church on Song of Songs and its relationship and study and its impact on intimacy in a marriage. It's quite good, and there's a clear indication on its study in the health of marriage between a man and a woman. But there is the other side. It's an allegory of Christ, the bridegroom, and his church. The profoundness of this type of study as well has an intimacy all its own. 
Many through history have been impacted by this view of the Song of Songs. So whether you look at the book of the Song of Songs as an allegory of God and His love affair with man or the body of Christ, or the study of intimacy in marriage, it is very rewarding. It's the Bible book of intimacy. If you struggle with intimacy, read and study the Song of Songs and see what happens in your life. I get the feel Solomon was a hopeless romantic early on. He had no problem with polygamy and probably started early getting married, but probably didn't overdo it too early. And there's a sort of innocence in the romance of the Song of Songs, and the figurative language is actually quite hilarious. The main characters in the Song of Songs is Solomon and a woman who is termed as a Shulamite with an L. We get the feel from the landscape of the song that Solomon is a relatively new king. He has just started building his harem, and this possibly occurs prior to his marriage to the Egyptian queen we will soon discuss. Some claim this Shulamite with an L is the same Shunammite, which is spelled with an N, that David had in bed with him in his last days to keep warm, whose name was Abishag, and the woman who Adonijah wanted to marry, and Solomon quickly ordered his death for it. There is much debate on her true identity. Regardless, their romance inspires the most romantic of all the books of the Old Testament. More to follow on the Song of Songs. We introduce it now because Solomon has most likely begun his relationship with the Shulamite. As Solomon steps into the kingship of Israel, we've got to try to picture more of what he walks into and becomes. We will see that Solomon becomes our understanding of the extremity of blessing, a picture of God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but also the extremity of generational cursing. He disobeys all of Moses' three primary warnings about kings. But where did he learn it from? His father, the greatest of the kings of Israel, who married a foreign wife. One of David's eight wives, Mekah, was the daughter of Talmai, king of Jashur. Maybe Solomon saw this and the effect of the marriage with the princess of another king and wondered in his heart what a brilliant idea to unite kingdoms and bring peace. Moses said not to, but David, his father, did not have a problem with it. Could it be Solomon was so pleased with this idea he said this to himself? Why not make alliances with larger kingdoms? Why not make alliances with many kingdoms? Why not marry as many women and princesses of kingdoms as possible and make alliances and bring peace to the whole world? It brings peace and promotes prosperity. So this is where we get to see Solomon walking into the ways of his father. It's sad to consider the sins of a father open doors for greater strongholds in their children. 1 Kings chapter 3 Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting how the sins of the father can become the greater sins of the son? After believe his father, David, if he had wind of this idea, he wouldn't have objected to the marriage because David's fourth wife was Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jashur, a political marriage. Why can't Solomon have political marriages? Okay, if this marriage was innocent enough, 
Maybe he would only marry maybe one more other princess? Maybe a few other women? No, probably not. This must have been a huge deal for a king to unite his kingdom with another through a marriage. Solomon, in his golden splendor, marrying the princess of Egypt. It must have been a glorious wedding, but not in God's eyes. All right, so let's talk about this marriage to the princess of Egypt. In our Talk History episode with Brant Frost, we discussed the possibilities of who this princess of Egypt was. Continuing our thread from this discussion, Solomon marries Nephrobiti, the sister of Hatshepsut. It is Pharaoh Thutmose I, a conquering pharaoh of southern Egypt and Nubidia, who protects his eastern flank with a crazy alliance with Solomon by marrying off his daughter. And we can't forget the unbelievable dowry gift for his daughter by Pharaoh. 1 Kings 9.16 Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on fire. He killed its Canaanite inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So I had a friend who was wanting to propose to this girl to marry her. So he went to her father first to ask for her hand in marriage. And as this happens, the father says, first let me show you something. And he took him and showed him his gun collection. And he always told this story. You know, it's kind of a humorous story, but there's an implication. You know, by the father, I raised this girl. Don't hurt my daughter. And here is Pharaoh. He destroys and kills off all the inhabitants of a Philistine town of Gezer. And then he gives the town to Solomon as a dowry gift. I mean, it's it's an unbelievable, striking gift of showing one's power but it's also a sign don't hurt my daughter you know because i just leveled the buffer city between our countries all right solomon takes a pretty great step in the world's eyes with this move but a pretty bad step in his kingship according to god this will be a picture of what will come this is where it would be good for us to remember God's rules for kings outlaid in Deuteronomy 17:16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt or get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So besides the statements regarding the law, there is three specific commands for a king. There must not be great numbers of horses or make the people return to Egypt. He should not take many wives. David was guilty of this. Solomon will be shamefully guilty of this. But check out the rest. For many wives will pull the king's heart away. Also, he mustn't accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. 
Security against this was to write a copy of the law and to read it always and to carefully follow the words of the law and always be humble. And the reward was the eternal security of the kingdom. So what does Solomon do with these commands? It's almost like he purposely breaks them at the fullest of his ability. It's crazy. It's almost like he and his father had an understanding that these verses or the three specific commandments or parts of the law did not apply to them. Maybe they thought Moses was too old-fashioned. The marriage to the Pharaoh's daughter is a red flag to start Solomon's kingship. It's important to take note of these red flags because Solomon's blessings will be absurd and God is about to encounter him and dunfound him with his blessings. So we make a break here in this episode, throwing up the red flag, and periodically we'll throw up these flags because his first 20 or more years of kingship are truly unreal and fantastic, so as to not be surprised later on. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, let's talk about Deuteronomy 17 and God's specific commands for a king and how it applies to you and me and anyone considered a king in this world. The three must-nots are the king must not accumulate great numbers of horses, wives, or his heart will turn astray, and he must not accumulate large quantities of gold. The representation of these three things are the role of Father God. When man steps into God's role, we don't need God, and we reject his covering, protection, provision, and identity over us, and we stop worshiping God. The Father's role, as demonstrated by Father God, is protection, provision, and identity over his sons and daughters. He provides these things. Horses represent strength and protection. Gold is God's provision for us. And wives are the fullest expression of relationship where we come to understand the true identity God has for us. The breaking of these three commandments invites destruction for kings. It's these three basic understandings that we must have of Father God. He is our protector, provider, and our identity is in Him. I ask you, what does this look like for you? What does God require of you? If you are a true king or a leader of a country, horses represent your military, gold your wealth, and wives your luxury or status. Is your faith in these things or God? Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with your military, gold, or luxuries. But is your faith in these things? God delights in your weakness and doesn't want our faith in things instead of Him. But what does this mean to house moms or businessmen? Everything. We have a responsibility as well, no matter your role in this life. What are your horses? It's a thing that brings you strength. It's your crutch, something you find strength in besides God. It could be anything. The blind spot where you do not trust God. God can reveal this to us. Just ask. How about the businessman? Is it the search for gold and wealth and pursuit of one's own success that distracts from God and even family? Just add a lowercase l to the word God and you get gold. Gold is not bad whatsoever. It is basic economics. But if your faith and hope and glory is in your wealth, you've walked away. I have a theory that the rich man in the Bible from Matthew 19 eventually did give all of his money away. 
but it was such a stronghold for him, it took him a long time to do it. But in the book of Acts, it says that none of the disciples were in need. Because his faith was in his money, Jesus required him to take steps to rid himself of this false faith mindset. What about the many wives? What is the most obvious of the commands? It's the world and sin. All of us must be on guard against the temptations of the world and be careful. In the case of Solomon, he had something rough to deal with, and it wasn't good. The fact that his father allowed polygamy, and because of this, he had a mindset and basic understanding that this was okay. And many of us, like Solomon, have parents that taught us sin was okay and justified immoral behavior. Culture does it as well. Solomon didn't overcome this specifically related to the wives' part. But we can. The three commands of God to kings come against his role as Father God. Do not put your faith in your own protection, your provision, and yourself and your pleasure. His heart pounds for his beloved to understand him and love and to not trust in any other. Since we've gone down this route, we end this episode with something called the Father's Love Letter. For the call to kings is to above all be in love with Father God and to trust in Him. The Father's Love Letter, an intimate message from God to you, as read from the thefathersloveletter.com. My child, you may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered. You are made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. For you are my offspring. I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You are not a mistake, for all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but I am a complete expression of love. It is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I am your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope, because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good for you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. For it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more for you than you could possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I will take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your Father, and I love you, even as I love my Son, Jesus. 
For in Jesus, my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you. And I tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I loved that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me. And nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I've always been father and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? I am waiting for you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as Solomon encounters God and receives the gift of wisdom. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.